Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Hokie Hangover Podcast. I am Andrew Alex from ESPN Blacksburg. That's 93.1 and 97.1 in the New River Valley and live online at ESPNBlacksburg.com and the ESPN Blacksburg app. I am joined with me by the usual suspects. First, but not necessarily foremost, Mike McDaniel from Sports Illustrated. Mike, what American city are you broadcasting from right now? Columbus, Ohio, baby. Surprise, surprise. How's that treating you? Home sweet home. And live from the 757, he blogs at rickylablue.com. Ricky LeBlue, how are you, man? I'm doing good. I feel like every time Mike tells us that he's coming live from Columbus, a little piece inside of him dies. And I really do feel sad because I can just see that the smile on your effervescent face just getting smaller and smaller every time. Yeah, man. Well, speaking of smiles going away (laughs) and dreams dying, I guess we got to speak to the task at hand right now. The Belk Ball, a game that Virginia Tech led for, what was it? (laughs) 58 minutes of the game. Well, they ultimately end up losing Kentucky the victor. We made it like two minutes. Yeah, I know, I know. A 37-30 to 30 victory by Kentucky over Virginia Tech, and certainly a heartbreaking loss, a gut-wrenching loss if you are the Hokies. And I'll tell you this, I was surrounded by... Upwards of 40 of my Virginia Tech people from college, we were at the the GOAT, which is the Virginia Tech bar up there in Arlington. So we weren't only surrounded by each other. We were surrounded by so many other of the Hokie faithful. And that was awesome. But at the end of the day, despite leading the entire time in an exciting game, it's one that maybe be, maybe would be worth forgetting in the long run. Kentucky wins at the last minute. The primary running quarterback throws the touchdown pass. Ricky, I'm going to ask you first. What exactly did Virginia Tech do wrong to allow Kentucky and their essentially one-dimensional offense to come away with a victory over the Hokies in this game? I think it's kind of a – ultimately, it's Virginia Tech's defense just not performing. Uh, I don't think you can really look at this game any other way and not pin this loss on the defense. I understand that Virginia Tech's offense kind of slowed down in the second half, but – Anytime you score 30 points, you should be really in contention to win, and you shouldn't be fighting for your life down there trying to do whatever the hell lateral play that was that resulted in a late Kentucky touchdown. But ultimately, it's the same thing that kind of bit them in the butt against Virginia is that they had one guy that they had to key in on, and in this case, it was Lynn Bowden Jr., and they just flat out didn't, and they let him run roughshod all over him. And he completed just enough passes in order to win this game. So it's it's very disappointing considering, as you mentioned, Andrew, how one-dimensional this offense has really become over the second half of the season for, for the Wildcats. But ultimately, Virginia Tech's defense just didn't get the job done, and it's very disappointing considering there were a lot of bright moments for this Virginia Tech defense in the second half of the year. Mike, what stands out to you from this game? Yeah, I had the same reaction, and it was funny because I was, um, you know, I, I watched the game, obviously. I was looking at social media, too, which is a bloodbath after losses like this. Um, a lot of, yeah, a lot of comments about the offensive play calling again, and I get it, right? There were some calls like short side of the field, back sweeps are not ideal, really, in any situation. I wasn't a huge fan of those either, but like Ricky said, I mean, anytime you score 30 points, 
anytime you average almost six yards per play, anytime you average 6.6 yards per rush, you should probably win that football game, right? Like you can't pin it on the offense at that point. And, you know, Ricky mentioned this already as well, but the offense slowed down second half, that's for sure. But the defense didn't perform. And, you know, it's, it's tough for Bud Foster to go out the way that he did um, and not be able to stop a running quarterback. And again, like this has been a problem for a while now for Virginia tech and, you know, shout out to Kentucky too, number one, because this was a team this year that battled some pretty gruesome quarterback injuries. Like they lost their top two starters. Um, you know, Lynn Bowden Jr. is a receiver and he converted to quarterback. And then Mark Stoops completely revamped his entire offense to ensure that Lynn Bowden Jr. was, you know, his skill set was maximized. He and credit where it's due, Stoops is a hell of a coach. Yeah, I mean, he was excellent the entire year. Um, you know, teams knew what was coming when they were playing Kentucky but it just didn't matter. Uh, they were still able to run the ball at a really high level. At some point, you do need to credit Kentucky. But, yeah, it's a Virginia Tech defense not performing at the end of the day. And uh, say what you want about Bud Foster, obviously, Hall of Fame career, tough for him to go out like this. Um, but in some ways, I think it was time, you know. Um, I do think that. And the last few years, Virginia Tech's defense has struggled to defend specifically run-pass option teams, which – a majority of the teams in the ACC are moving to that. And you've seen Virginia Tech's defense struggle here and there throughout the course of the last few years, defending the RPOs. And, you know, that wasn't the case in the belt ball, obviously. You know, Kentucky isn't necessarily an RPO offense with Lynn Bowden Jr. They're a very heavy run and don't really throw much at all. But you see kind of the, the lingering effects of the running quarterback on a Virginia Tech defense. And schematically, Bud Foster has now struggled with that. Um, for a few years and getting his team schemed up. And, you know, some of it was the inexperience of the players here and there, but also, you know, when you get into this season and you have a lot of veteran guys, uh, you know, or at least guys who have started for a full season coming, starting to come into their own as they move up through the program, you do expect the defense to play a little bit better. And the defense played well throughout the majority of the year, but obviously it wasn't their best outing against Virginia to include the regular season. And then obviously with this performance in the football, Definitely not how you want to see the defense go out and not how you want to see Bud Foster go out either. And boy, it comes back to what seems to be a tale as old as time. Virginia Tech's inability to stop the dual threat quarterback. This time it was Lynn Bowden, a guy who didn't start the season as a quarterback for Kentucky. And against Virginia Tech, he puts on a performance that I'm sure will live within Kentucky lore for quite some time. Obviously, he'd been good all season, but this was a great game for Bowden. 233 yards on the ground, two touchdowns. He had 73 yards in the air, capped off by that game-winning passing touchdown as well. The inability to stop the dual-threat quarterback, obviously a huge issue against Bryce Perkins and Virginia. We saw it as an issue to a lesser extent against other teams as well. So seeing what we've seen in these last two games, what I want to know is, Is this Virginia Tech unable to stop the dual threat quarterback a problem that you believe will persist going forward? Or do you think something that will be fixed over the offseason? I don't know. Um, And that's 
might be a cop-out answer. I really don't know because I don't know what Justin Hamilton's defense is necessarily going to look like. Now, I do think it'll be largely predicated on the principles he's learned under Bud Foster, but I do also know that Justin Hamilton is going to put his own spin on this as well. As a defensive coordinator, he's going to coach it up a different way. Uh, schematically, I don't know how to look under Justin Hamilton that did under Bud Foster. I do think some things need to change, certainly, because what Bud Foster has been doing or has been unable to do, I guess, over the last few years is, is effectively stop the running quarterback, effectively stop the RPO game consistently. So Justin Hamilton is going to have to figure that out. I don't know what this is going to look like next season and moving forward for Virginia Tech. That's something we're kind of going to have to see. I guess the first glimpse of it will be in spring ball that won't be a fair representation of what the defense will look like moving forward, but we'll at least get a taste of, of what they'll look like and at least the alignment of the defense. But I'm just not really entirely sure what this is going to look like moving forward um, under Dustin Hamilton. So at this point, I think the jury is still out. Ricky for years and years, the same problem with these dual threat quarterbacks. And I'm, kind of looking more at solutions here. What stands out? What can be fixed? Would it be better defensive end play? Does the responsibility fall more on the linebackers? Is this maybe a Bud Foster problem? What can be done to fix this issue that's haunted Virginia Tech now for years? Well, part of it is a is a problem that every single defense in the country is facing, and that's just math. Anytime you have a running quarterback like that, it evens up the equation for the offense, and all of a sudden you've got a hat on a hat on the offensive side, and it's a hell of a lot easier to run the football. So I think that that's part of it. I think the other part of it too is that, yeah, Virginia Tech's defensive line play really hasn't been all that great uh, since 2016. And if you want to go back even further, it's been kind of early 2010s-ish. Um, we haven't seen those really, really good defensive ends like a Jason Worlds or a Daddy Nicholas in quite some time. And having that kind of a speed and athleticism off the edge makes a big difference. Um, I think the other part is just gap containment, which is something that Bud Foster's defenses have used to their advantage when they're rushing upfield. And that's one of the reasons why they've been so successful. But in this day and age where you do have to be able to read and react as a defense, I think that that may be kind of a problem. And kind of going back to the, the question you asked Mike, that's probably the only way to answer. We don't really know how this is going to look. One would assume that Justin Hamilton's defense is going to look relatively similar, um, and therefore one would guess that they're probably going to have some struggles defending mobile quarterbacks. But like Mike said, we don't really know what kind of differences that Justin Hamilton is going to bring to this defensive scheme. And I would say we're really not going to learn anything until week one next year. And obviously, we have to talk about quarterback play on the other side of things. If we're being intellectually honest, and that's what we do here at the Hokie Hangover podcast. For better or for worse. We have to acknowledge, for better or worse, whether it's the news that you want to hear or not, that this was quite simply not Hendon Hooker's best game. In fact, it might be closer to his worst. I mean, the stat sheet doesn't really pop off too much to you. 110 yards in the air, two touchdowns. He added 50-some-odd yards on the ground, but simply not Hooker's best game. I don't want to draw up too much negativity, right, because Hooker was our knight in shining armor for most of the season, but did Hendon Hooker seem like he regressed a little bit at the end of the season into that belt bowl? Uh, I would certainly say so. Um First of all, Kentucky's defense is really good. They've been good all season. If you go back to really the beginning, 
Kentucky's defense was not the reason that they were struggling in the middle of the year, and they were still playing pretty darn well towards the end of the season. So we have to give them credit for for being a good defensive unit. But Head and Hooker is you know somewhat limited, and we've known this from the start. He's not a polished passer. He's not overly accurate. He probably isn't ready to handle complex defenses. And as we said earlier, Mark Stoops is a hell of a coach, and you have to give him credit. And he probably kind of came into this game trying to make Hendon Hooker take a, you know an extra millisecond or an extra second to make these reads. So I think it's just part of Hendon Hooker's development. I'm not overly worried about it. He was facing a team that he's never seen before, facing a bunch of players that he's never seen before in his first bowl game as a starter. Yes, it's not ideal, but... I don't think it's something where a bunch of fans should start raising the alarm. It's just this is a thing that Hendon Hooker is going to have to get better at going forward. And we knew this from the get-go. We've known from the start that Hendon isn't a great passer, and we've known that he's got to work on his mechanics and be more consistent. This shouldn't really be a surprise. It just sucks that it came in a game where, even though generally people like to discount the meaning of bowl games, it felt like this bowl game meant a lot more than normal. Mike, what are your thoughts on Hendon's performance? Yeah, I largely agree with that. Um, I, yeah, it wasn't Hendon Hooker's best game. Uh, there were some drops in there that didn't help his stat line, but he missed a lot of really open throws, especially in the first quarter early in the game. Um, there were guys that were open that he just missed. He missed high. He missed low. He missed outside. He just wasn't confident, wasn't comfortable in the pocket. Um, I do know he was banged up towards the end of the year. Um, I, I don't like using injuries as an excuse. I know that he was gutting through some stuff, primarily with that knee that he really banged up against North Carolina. Um, he fought through it throughout the rest of the season. I do think, you know, having, a, you know, a few weeks off here uh, before winter, winter workouts and then obviously spring ball here um, in a month or two, I, I think that'll really help him. Uh, but at the same time, he does need to work on his mechanics. Like Ricky said, he's not the best passer of the football mechanically. We knew that coming into the year. That's the reason why he didn't win the starting job right off the bat. Uh, he is rough around the edges throwing the football. We know that as well. There are glimpses, uh, and he's shown plenty of that this year, uh, that give hope for the future that he can be a really, really good quarterback overall throwing the football. There was a lot more good than bad this year. This was certainly not his best game here in the bowl game, but I do admire the way he gutted it out. I do think he was still able to make some plays here in the bowl game. And um, it's, again, it's a very good Kentucky defense. It also was not Hendon Hooker's best outing. Both things can kind of coexist at the same time there. But I don't think Virginia Tech fans should panic based on the performance in the bowl game whatsoever. I do think Hendon Hooker, uh, still can be very good moving forward. And I, I think he displayed enough in his time as a starter this year to uh, give Virginia Tech fans, um, at least give them some excitement moving forward and some encouraging signs of what the offense can look at heading into 2020. And let's let's also remember real quick, too, they still scored 30 points. We said this yeah. earlier. It's not like the offense was just bad. Yeah, Hendon left a lot out there, and that's going to – that's going to really draw the ire of a lot of people during the offseason. But he still, you know, orchestrated an offense that scored 30 points against a pretty darn good defense. And and that's really what's saddening, boys, right? That's what hurts the heart, because let's take a trip back in time to November 24th, right? Doesn't seem like that long ago, but at the same time. But on November 24th, Virginia Tech was coming off of nearly 10 consecutive quarters of shutout football. 
So obviously things were looking really good. Things looked like that defense was coming along. But after those near 10 quarters of shutout football, Bryce Perkins and Lynn Bowden come in and put up 39 and 30 points respectively. In this modern era of college football, I mean, especially in the ACC, this isn't a big, we're not in the Big 12 or anything like that. 30 points feels like it should be enough to win you a football game as a team. But in what kind of felt like ghosts of 2018, the defense just at the end of the season here, those final two games, Virginia and Kentucky, wasn't holding it up. Definitely kind of felt some ghosts from 2018 there. Yeah, I I don't I know. Guess. I don't know if I would go that far. I, I think I think 2018. We okay. It wasn't exactly 2018 bad, but it's the same idea. Perhaps I don't know. I, I feel like 2018 was was so, was so bad just because of the way that they played and getting absolutely blown away by mediocre ACC opponents. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's it's certainly frustrating that the defense once again didn't play well, which is similar to 2018, obviously, but. That just felt really different to me. It felt like those defenses were just getting completely outmatched and outplayed. And I don't necessarily feel that way about this year's unit. Um, it, it's it's more maddening that in, in Virginia Tech's final two games of the season against Virginia and Kentucky, there's one guy on each team that you really have to worry about. For Virginia, it's Bryce Perkins. For Kentucky, it's Lynn Bowden. And... Virginia Tech failed to stop either of those guys. They didn't even come close to containing either of those football players. And as excellent of a coordinator as Bud Foster is, and he 100% deserves to be in the College Football Hall of Fame without a doubt, it's, it's maddening that he wasn't able to figure it out. And forgive me, but I it's hard to have a ton of confidence in Justin Hamilton who has learned under Bud Foster when Bud Foster hasn't figured it out. And really, this has been a problem for going on a decade now. Understandably so. Mike, what Yeah, R- Ricky, I'm 100% with you again. Um, I'm not all that confident in Hamilton because he's been learning under, under Bud Foster, and Bud Foster hasn't exactly shown that he can stop these kinds of offenses in the last few years. Um, you, you guys will remember, and you guys are big college football fans, this RPO stuff is pretty new, like within the last few seasons. And Bud Foster's defenses have not been able to stop any of it. Yeah. I don't think that's a coincidence, right? Like this is something that has been a problem for a while. Running quarterbacks have been a problem for Virginia Tech for a while. I mean, I'm thinking back to when I was a junior in college. We're talking like the 2013-2014 season. I mean, Rakeem Cato of Marshall – came to Blacksburg in a driving rainstorm and ran all over Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech ended up pulling that game out in overtime. But that was a ridiculous performance by Rakeem Cato. And that was one of the first times I was like, man, Bud Foster really is having trouble stopping a running quarterback. And it just kind of continued for the next like three or four years. And something that really never got better throughout the latter portion of his tenure at Virginia Tech. And also, the other thing, too, is is that it's not like this is unique to Virginia Tech. College defenses across the country can't stop the RPO. I mean, look, Rob, at, the, look yep. at the Big 12. That, that, that's all you need to know. I mean, the, the RPO, especially in the college game where there's such a discrepancy between the faster players and the slower players and the average players, 
and this the field is spaced out more because you've got guys lining up further away from the football. The football's being lined up closer to the sidelines. There's just more space to be created in the college game, and it's becoming really, really difficult for defenses to figure out how to cover all of that space when you have a quarterback that is capable of taking it to the house. Yeah, one more thing real quick, and look no further. LSU is like another – it's on another planet with their offenses here. But look at the SEC championship. Georgia had the best defense statistically in the country this year. LSU – LSU's offense is unbelievable, but they blew them off the field. And you're seeing more of that than anything else in the last few years with this RPO. No defenses can stop it. Virginia Tech included. They're just one of the many, many defenses across college football that's having a really, really hard time defending all of these athletes in space. It's something that's completely changed the game. Um, it's obviously really exciting football being played across the country right now. Uh, but this is something that's been a problem for a lot of defensive coordinators, not just Bud Foster. It's unfortunate that this has happened and, and that Virginia Tech's defenses have struggled and that Bud Foster went out the way that he did. It's not necessarily a total indictment on Bud Foster as a coordinator, a Hall of Fame coordinator, no way, not Hall a chance. of Fame coach. He was outstanding throughout his entire tenure in Blacksburg. But this is something that he's had trouble to defend, and many, many other really good defensive coordinators across college football are really struggling with right now. And just so everyone knows, we're not here to criticize Bud Foster's body of work as the defensive coordinator at Virginia Tech. Because Bud Foster's body of work as the defensive coordinator for Virginia Tech is, I mean, damn near impeccable when you look at the Bud's work. Yeah, and and you can can criticize Bud without taking away from his overall credibility and legacy and – I think any reasonable tech fan who's willing to be honest can can do that, and they can say that while Bud Foster is one of the best defensive minds to ever grace planet Earth in terms of the game of football, he's also had a bit of an Achilles heel, as really any good coach does, and it's come to bite him in, in the ass a bit more here in the last several seasons. I mean, and you look at how Virginia Tech's defense did against teams that didn't give you that primary RPO look. I mean, think back to Wake Forest. Heading into that Wake Forest game, Wake was a ranked team that was known for its dynamic passing offense with Jamie Newman, who, by the way, is transferring to Oregon now. Well, what position group do you think needs to get better in order to stop this Achilles heel? Because... Louisville poses a threat next year. Uh, obviously, Sam Howell, I'm very talented. UNC Tar Heels got a lot of people coming back. They pose a threat next year. Who really stands out to you? Well, I think they've got to be more athletic at linebacker. And yeah. that's something that is unfortunately going to put Dax Hollyfield on the bench, really, is, or at least take him out of the starting group as long as Rayshard Ashby's playing Mike because, look, Rayshard Ashby can't come out of that that position. He's too damn good. And Alan Tisdale, even though he maybe made too many mental mistakes this year, provides the better uh, prototype for that backer spot, and he just gives you a bit more athleticism. And you're starting to see more linebackers like that. I mean, Isaiah Simmons at Clemson is, what, 6'1", 215, and the guy can play slot, he can play safety, he can play linebacker, he can play Mike. I mean, he can do whatever. You're going to start to see more and more of those guys. So I think they've got to get a bit more athletic at linebacker. And in the end, they've got to be better up front because ultimately those are the guys that are running most of the gaps. Um Virginia Tech's defensive ends have been 
kind of average to below average for a, for a few years now, and they've got to get better play out of those guys. And you've got to have the guys in the interior start to make more plays. And I think Virginia Tech found a really good gem in Deshaun Crawford there in the middle. And I think that they've got some potential behind him and Narelle Pollard and Mario Kendricks. But ultimately, the front seven is really it's it's really on them because you're always going to have an athletic playmaker in that whip position. And I think we've seen Shamari Connor be kind of a dynamic playmaker there. And he's only going to get better over time. But yeah, they've got to have better play in the in the front seven. Mike, and you look at these guys up front. I mean, you got Belmar and Hewitt with the a little bit of experience there. Crawford, a good addition. Garbett went on the field, looks very good. On top of the guys that were true freshmen this year in Pollard and Kendrick. But my question to you is, Mike, do you think that one year in the weight room is enough to get this group back on par and you know up that athleticism going into next year? No, I mean, I I think Taiwan Garbutt just needs to get healthy, right? Like he just needs to, well, not only get healthy, but stay healthy. He's, he, has, he's good when he, he has one of the highest ceilings on the defense. Oh, he's really good when he plays. One of the better players? Yeah, in the team? he's really, really good when he plays. He just needs to stay healthy, which, you know, we'll see if he can continue to do that. Um, Jared Hewitt's fine, right? Like I, we know what we got with him. Um Kendricks is fine. Norrell Pollard, fine. Like, Deshaun Crawford, pretty good. Like, I think Virginia Tech's defensive line, I think they're young more than anything else. I do think that the ends need to stay healthy. Uh, getting more athletic at linebacker, I think, is the key to this entire thing. Um, because as young as Virginia Tech was up front, they had a lot of experience or at least enough experience in the linebacker group that I expected to have a better year out of a lot of those guys. Um, I thought Rayshard Ashby obviously was outstanding. Uh, to Ricky's point, uh, you know, moving forward, it's going to be interesting to see how this linebacker group shakes out. Like Alan Tisdale probably isn't quite as good as Dax Hollyfield, but he's got a higher ceiling at this point. I think he's more athletic at that backer position, like Ricky mentioned. Uh, he did make a lot of mental mistakes this year that Dax Hollyfield wouldn't necessarily make. Um, he was Hollyfield was making those mistakes, I think, early in the year, and he got better as the year went on. Uh, but Tisdale does provide you with more athleticism. And I think depending on the matchups that you get, I do think Tisdale provides you with a better look at that backer position. And you can't take Ashby out of Mike. Um, you know, in the secondary, they're going to be experienced coming back. Devin Hunter is going to more than likely fill in for that Reggie Floyd role. And hopefully Devin Hunter uh, can now make an impact in Blacksburg outside of just spot starting and being a special teams player because he was one of Virginia Tech's highest rated recruits in like 20 years. So hopefully he can provide something for us here over the, the final two years of his collegiate career. Uh, but Virginia Tech has defensive back depth, um, or at least their starters have been really good and they're all going to be returning. So I think that's obviously an encouraging sign, but I think the linebackers are key to this whole thing because I do I do expect the defensive line to continue to get better as they gain more experience, especially on the interior. And it's, the key is Garbutt staying healthy. And I think the linebackers, you know, whether it's the guys they have now or the guys they continue to try to recruit, just get a bit more athletic in the middle of that defense because I think that's going to be the key to slowing down some of these RPO offenses in the ACC. You're going to have to have some of these linebackers match up with some of these slot receivers at some point. It's going to be a more dynamic-looking defense 
here moving forward for Virginia Tech and a lot of other teams across college football. That's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to adapt. And as good as Virginia Tech's recruiting at linebacker has been, they've been really recruiting more Mike guys than they have backer guys. And we see that in Rayshard Ashby and Dax Hollyfield and Dylan Rivers, who has since retired from football. And even Keyshawn Artis, who's also still in the program, he's more of a Mike. So really you don't have a prototypical outside linebacker on the roster other than Alan Tisdale right now, which is one of the reasons that Dax Hollyfield has been thrust into that backer role, which isn't really a perfect fit for him. And Ricky, I want to stay on the defensive side of the ball for you here. Let's talk about Devon Hunter. He's going to step in and replace Reggie Floyd, the only senior on this defense, the only guy outside of Deshaun McLeese, who now we know is going pro, and we'll talk more about McLeese in a minute, that was a major contributor on this team that won't be back next year. So looking forward to Hunter, a lot of potential, obviously, coming into Virginia Tech. Not much results yet. What are your expectations for Devon Hunter in 2020? I think he'll be serviceable. Uh, At this point, I don't think Devin is ever going to be a game-changing player. Uh, If he was, he would have done it by now. Being in a program really only helps you in certain ways, right? It helps you mentally, and it helps you grow and mature as a player and as a person. But your talent is your talent. You've either got it or you don't. And I'm not really sure if Virginia Tech just missed on the eval or if a lot of schools missed on the eval or if the injuries that Devin sustained in his first uh, first and second seasons just held him back too much. I'm not really sure. I don't know if it was the pressure, but Devin just hasn't really lived up to the hype. And look, he could come out this year and break out. It's certainly possible. And Lord knows Virginia Tech fans are, are, are demanding it. I mean, they, they really, really need it. But uh, just given what we've seen from Devin at this point, you can't really expect him to be anything more than a serviceable player. And look, if he's able to come out and be a serviceable uh, or serviceable rover for two seasons, at this point, I think Tech fans would take that because he hasn't really lived up to the hype and he hasn't even been able to contribute all that much outside of special teams. So um, that's what I'm expecting. There's There's certainly a chance that he could come out this year and, and really shine, but I just don't see it. And I think my take on this is having known about Devon Hunter for quite some time, given his recruiting status, I think everyone in and around this program knows he has endless potential. And the question is, has he been able to make that adjustment to fill that position next year that will allow him to be a contributor? We can only hope so, because you just got to hope that redshirting him back in 2018 will pay dividends in the long run. I I really hope it will. But Mike, staying on the defensive side of the ball here, Caleb Farley, the All-ACC guy for Virginia Tech, the cornerback, he will return. He will not go pro after this year. How important is that for the Hokies in 2020? Yeah, Caleb Farley returning is gigantic. Um, You know, to have him and Waller and Shamari Connor and uh, Diablo and having uh, Devin Hunter being able to play in a secondary with a lot of guys who have started throughout all of the 2018, 2019, or I'm sorry, the 2019 season, um, having a lot of these guys returning, it's a veteran secondary. I think that can only help Hunter sitting behind Reggie Floyd, I think will also help Hunter. Um, I think more than anything, it was clear that 
they were having trouble finding a spot where Devin Hunter's skills could be maximized. I think he's certainly an athletic guy. I, I don't think you get the rating that he got without being athletic, but it was clear that he wasn't necessarily fitting um, with what Virginia Tech wanted to do. I think they, you know, obviously tried him out at a couple different spots and he either just couldn't grasp, you know, what Bud Foster wanted him to do or he just wasn't ready for that type of role. Regardless, they're going to have him play Rover and we'll kind of see how it plays out. Like Ricky said, there's certainly an opportunity for him to break out. But at this point, you're just hoping for him to be a good, uh, just a good player simply um, at, at that safety position. So we'll see where, where that all pans out. But getting Caleb Farley back is huge. It's a key to the entire defense. He can shut an entire side of the field down. Right now, um, he, he was unbelievable this season. I don't think any of us were – I think some of us, it, at least anyway, we, we thought that he could bounce back and be better than he was last year as a redshirt freshman, but nobody was expecting – him to break out and be an All-American type performer. Forget All-ACC. He was first-team All-ACC at corner. He was honorable mention All-American. Like He was really, really good, guys. And I don't think any of us were necessarily expecting him to break out quite in that fashion. And to get him back on this defense will really help, and it definitely escalates our ceiling. Justin Fuente needs to lock Caleb Farley in the Hilton Garden in right off of Price's Fork and wrap him in bubble wrap and not let him touch the field until August. I mean, look, he, like, he, has, nothing, he has nothing to prove, right? I mean, having him on the field this spring does absolutely nothing. <laughs> so when you look back to a few months ago, when we first started this podcast, when we first started this venture, we all had you know, differing expectations for this Virginia Tech team. And expectations obviously varied widely throughout the season from that slow start, you know, culminating with the debacle against Duke to the ride between the Miami game and the Pitt game when everything really looked like it was starting to come together for Virginia Tech and obviously the slight disappointment at the end of the season. But my question for you guys is, how would you grade this season for Virginia Tech based on your preseason expectations coming into the season? I'm pretty sure that I I picked Virginia Tech to win eight games this year, but you did. Um, I in no way did I think they would get to eight wins in the way that they did, and and I don't think anybody <laughs> really predicted that. I mean, um, and and actually, it kind of makes it feel more disappointing given the fact that for seven eight games of the season, we saw exactly the the pinnacle of Virginia Tech football for this season. We saw what this team could do. And for them to kind of fall flat on their face in the UVA game, I know a lot of people have given me some heat for that. But look, Virginia Tech beat lost to a team that has one offensive weapon. And look, Virginia is not that good. Um, Virginia Tech should have won that game, in my opinion, but they had several defensive miscues and the offensive line struggled in the end, and we don't need to rehash that anymore. But the way that Virginia Tech got to the eight-win mark is is disappointing because you saw just how good this team could be when operating at full capacity. And then for no reason, they just flipped the switch and they went back to kind of making these mental mistakes and and just not making enough plays to win football games. So while, yeah, and so while I I got the the win number right, I I don't really feel like this team 
met expectations given or in in my terms being they played consistent football. They just got out out talented a couple times by some good teams. Um, to me, it really feels like this team underachieved a bit, and uh, that's that's disappointing. And it's also disappointing given the the coaching issues that we saw earlier in the season, where it looked like this coaching staff was really up against it, and now we see most of that coaching staff gone. Mike, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I said nine and three end up being, I guess, one win plus the bowl game off of that. I didn't expect it to go the way that it did. I don't think anybody expected it to go the way that it did. Virginia Tech struggled to wins against Old Dominion and Furman, and that's before you even count the Rhode Island game in the middle of October that they kind of slogged their way through. Um, Virginia Tech, it was clear that they started the wrong quarterback. Ryan Willis was not a fit for uh, this system, I thought that he was the most polished passer. I still believe that he's the most polished polished passer. But if you're going to run your offensive system a certain way and you're not going to adapt the offense to the skill set that that particular quarterback has, then he's not going to be successful. And you saw him, unfortunately, lose his starting job because of a inconsistency on his own part. He threw a lot of interceptions. He fumbled the football. But also, he just wasn't a fit for what Virginia Tech wanted to do offensively under Brad Cornelson. Hendon Hooker was a much better fit, and the offense looked much better once he took over. I think, in turn, that helped the defense. At no point this year did I look at the Virginia Tech defense and thought, oh, man, this is like a repeat of 2018. Um, I just thought that overall the defense was much better this year. Uh, Defensive line, I think, ended up playing better than I expected. The secondary certainly played better than I expected. It exceeded all expectations that I had. The defensive line was probably slightly better than I thought it would be given the youth. Um, They had some encouraging performances there. And I thought the linebacking group was largely inconsistent. But, you know, defensively as a whole, it was a better year than last year. Offensively, it did leave some to be desired because you're kind of left wondering what was if Hendon Hooker was a starter for the first month of the year. You know, that Duke game, they laid a giant egg, and I'm not sure if, you know, Hendon Hooker next necessarily fixes that because the defense looked so, so bad in that Duke game that it might not have mattered. But that Boston College game, for sure, I think would have been different. And if Hendon Hooker's healthy for Notre Dame, I certainly think Virginia Tech wins that game. So, I don't think they're too far off. Um, I, I think it was, you know, you are left feeling a bit disappointed and a, and a bit empty. But, you know, compared to where they were at in September, uh, to finish kind of where they should have been, I, I think is encouraging. Because, you know, if you watch throughout the month of September, I, you know, none of us thought that Virginia Tech was winning eight or nine games based on how the team looked in September. In fact, we had a conversation on one of the podcasts I can't remember if it was right after the Duke game. It must have been right after the Duke game where we were wondering if Virginia Tech was even going to make a bowl game. We had that discussion on this podcast, and we were dead serious. I think Ricky said no. I said yes, but only at six wins. And that's kind of where we were at. And I think it got better as the year went on, certainly. But given the way the last two games went and how the defense looked, there's still a lot left to be desired on this season as a whole. And and for me, that's what makes it so frustrating is that you have such a sour taste in your mouth uh, after the last two games and it really does put a damper on the season at least in my eyes with threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever 
When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So it's really a mixed bag, right? Because given the high expectations that we had coming into the season, and I, I, I think I had them at nine wins coming in. So eight wins is not quite there. But it's really a tale of three seasons. Atrocious. In the beginning, it's certainly problematic, right? But after that Duke game, after everything bottomed out, after us watching what just didn't resemble Virginia Tech's pedigree of football early in the season, the team turned it around. They won a bunch of games in a row. And then when things started looking really good and push came to shove against Bryce Perkins and then ultimately Kentucky in the bowl game, they come up short. So am I disappointed that they didn't get into that nine-win mark that I had predicted? Yeah, a little bit. I Because it's a team that could have won the Coastal. But seeing in the beginning of the season the issues that we saw, the fact that they did turn it around to the extent that they did shows that a lot of those problems that they had early on, and, and namely those came at the quarterback position, were fixed. Now, there's clearly hills left to climb, as we saw against the dual-threat quarterbacks with UVA and Kentucky. But we have an entire offseason and an entire returning roster to work with that. Can we take a second and appreciate kind of how big of a turning point the UNC game was? I mean, imagine if Tech had lost that game. Do you do you foresee them going on that kind of run? Because I don't. It felt like to me that yeah. that win kind of lit a fire under them. The Miami win really taught them that they could do it, right? That they weren't this bad team that they had shown on the field and, and that the fan base, the alumni base, the media, the betting markets all seemed to agree. The North Carolina game, now that was a momentum turner. That was, we can actually do this. The result was almost a physical embodiment of the team's maturation on and off the field. We are a good football team, and to battle like they did in front of the Homeland Stadium crowd with people still really primarily picking against them, that was awesome. But ultimately, you know, for lack of a better term, the final two games of the season were sobering because it became obvious that not all of the previous problems had been resolved. But given what we saw in this tale of three seasons, within a season, I think you have to say that Justin Fuente did a pretty good coaching job this year. Do you agree? Well, I mean... Well, I, I, it, it's complicated, right? I mean, he 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 deserves blame for the the awful start to the season, and Lord knows we laid into him enough. And I'm not going to go over it again because we all know it. But he also gets credit for for the team turning things around and really blossoming over the second half of the season. He 100% gets a, a, a ton of credit for that. And then again, I feel like he's got to catch some of the blame for the Virginia loss and the Kentucky loss, uh, specifically the Virginia loss, because to me, in that kind of rivalry game, you know that this is Virginia's best bet. Justin Fuente went on record, I believe it was one or two years ago, where he said, they if they're going to get us, they better get us this year, because if they don't, it'll be a long time before they do. And sure enough, you go out there and lose. Um 
I don't know. I mean, it, I I feel like he did a good co- a good job of coaching for a po- a portion of the season, but there were some things that we saw this year that I can I can understand why there are still a, a large segment of the fan base that have doubts about his viability and his ability to turn this program into a perennial ACC contender. I totally get that. Now, I'm not I'm not going to call for the man to be fired like some people are because I think that that's just way way over the line, but I understand why some people have doubts and I think it's okay to have doubts about him given what the given what we've seen so far. Michael, yeah, I agree. Thoughts? I mean, you look at it holistically. Last year, took a rescheduled game to make a bowl game. Um, they should have lost to Virginia, and they didn't. And they beat Marshall in the rescheduled game after the East Carolina hurricane cancellation. And Virginia Tech wins against an unmotivated Marshall team at home. But they get to a bowl game. They get stomped by Cincinnati in that military bowl. They come out this year. They lose an opener to Boston College after turning the ball over multiple times. Uh, look uninspired against Duke a little over three weeks later. They, you know, didn't look great against Rhode Island. And, and you know what, Justin Fuente does deserve a lot of blame for how the season started. But if you're going to put all the blame on him for how the season started, you have to at least give him credit for how the season went after that for the majority of for the majority of it anyway, right, uh, leading up to the Virginia game. Uh, Virginia Tech had a really, really good two months. Offensively, they were one of the best units in the ACC. And people are going to say, okay, well, it was a down ACC this year. Yeah, I get it. Uh, but offensively, they were one of the top units in the conference once Hendon Hooker took over. Um, defensively, it looked a lot better in the month of October and especially in the month of November leading up to the UVA game. Defensively, I thought Virginia Tech was a lot better. Turnover margin completely flipped. Virginia Tech was among one, the worst teams not only in the ACC but in college football and turnover margin. They completely changed that in the middle of the season with how they started turning teams over on defense and how they were protecting the ball on offense. And yeah, the season leaves a lot to be desired. Sure, there should be doubts about Justin Fuente because of, you know, how the season started and how last year went. But there were some good things to come out of this year. And the Virginia loss, I think there there's a lot of blame to be parsed out there for Fuente and Bud Foster. And the bowl game, I thought offensively was overall really good, but defensively not the best effort again. So there are still some questions heading into 2020. I think 2020 is a make or break year for Justin Fuente and his tenure at Virginia Tech. I, you know, I, I think Virginia Tech is should be the preseason favorite in the Coastal. If not, they will likely be second behind North Carolina. I think those two teams will likely be the two favorites in the Coastal next year, but it's a make or break year for Fuente. Um, I, I'm anticipating them being a major player in the Coastal Division, likely contending for the division crown. If they don't contend for the division crown next year, something went horribly wrong. And we're talking about Justin Fuente's job security again. And as I tweeted earlier, we really have to look at this UNC team as, as a serious competitor going forward. I mean, by in bringing back Daz Newsom, that means Carolina returns two 1,000-yard receivers next year. They bring back Sam Howell, the true freshman this year, who obviously is going to improve, one would assume, during the offseason. And this is a guy that led the ACC in passing yardage overall, right? On top of that, you have 
Chaz Surratt, the all-ACC linebacker coming back. They bring in, I believe, the number one overall defensive end in the country. So as much as people wanted to laugh at the Mac Brown hire a year ago, this is a serious ACC Coastal contender next year and going forward. So with UNC bringing back a lot of contributors, and we talk about this defensive end recruit, a guy that can come in and contribute right away, you have to look at Virginia Tech with next year being as important as it is, let's focus on the quarterback position because this is something that has been a major point of confliction amongst the Virginia Tech Twitter base. So hear me out for a second. Going into you know spring camp, ultimately fall camp, and the 2020 season, should Justin Fuente give Braxton Burmeister the chance to compete with Hendon Hooker for the starting quarterback job Andrew. in 2020? Or has Hendon earned the right to really keep that job based on his performance this year? Uh, that's, I mean, it's a good question. I have not seen the kid throw a football, um, so I really can't give an educated answer here. I do think he'll be put into the quote-unquote competition. I don't think Justin Fuente is going to anoint Hendon Hooker the starter in January. I don't think he's going to do it in in May. Um, This will be something where he's done every year, which is he runs at least to some point in in preseason camp, and then he'll name a starter. Um, I I do think that he'll be quote-unquote in the competition. I do not expect Braxton Burmeister to seriously compete for the starting role. Um, barring a transfer, which I won't mention it because I know a lot of Tech fans are a little nervous. Uh, barring a transfer, I do think that Braxton Burmeister will be the third quarterback going into next year, and he's not really in a position to transfer again, so this is kind of his last shot here in Power 5. And I think it'll be Hendon Hooker and Quincy Patterson kind of rolling with the dice and see who comes out on top. I think Quincy's got the higher ceiling, but he's got a longer way to go in order to get to that point where he can be a starting caliber quarterback in the ACC. We saw what he can do with his legs, but he simply has too much room to grow, in my opinion, to where he's going to overtake Hendon Hooker. So I would bank on Hooker being the starter going into next year. Uh, But then again, I was also in the group that said Ryan Willis should be starting going into 2019, and we saw how that turned out. Yeah, I mean, everybody's talking about Braxton Burmeister being the starter next year, and they're basing that off of like a seven-play highlight film, which is really fun if you got nothing else to do with your spare time. But, you know, Hendon Hooker's done it (laughs) on the field already. You know, if Hendon Hooker didn't play well this year and Virginia Tech was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do at quarterback? Then, sure, I would say, yeah, Braxton Burmeister, slam dunk, coming in spring ball, taking Hendon Hooker's job. Could he still do that? Sure. I mean, is it going to be an open competition? Yeah, it definitely is, because that's what Justin Fuente does in camp. I would be shocked if Hendon Hooker is not the starter next season. I would. Um, I think he's done enough to prove that he's got a lot of potential uh, to be great at Virginia Tech. I agree with Ricky in that Quincy Patterson, I think, has the highest ceiling of any of the quarterbacks in that room right now, but I think he has the longest way to go. I don't really know a ton about Burmeister outside of what everybody's saying. He's really athletic, but I, I haven't seen him throw in person. So without seeing that, I don't want to just make judgments off of the highlight tape from high school. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I think that Burmeister could compete for the starting job. I don't expect it to be much of a competition, though. To, to just just to be clear, Braxton Burmeister played seven games as a freshman at Oregon, okay? Yep. He, th- he threw two touchdowns and six picks. Yep. 
So forgive me for being skeptical that Braxton Burmeister is going to come in here with basically two years off on the bench and seriously compete with Hendon Hooker, who played relatively well or relatively well this year. All I'm saying is my people on the inside and take this as you will have told me that in scout team during practice, there were times when Braxton Burmeister this offseason really was just killing the Virginia Tech defense and kind of establishing himself at least as someone who very well may be the best quarterback on this Virginia Tech roster. Well, that's not really surprising to me, given that he was a four-star recruit coming out of high school, and the guy does have some Division One football experience, and he's going up against a bunch of freshmen and red shirts and, and walk-ons. So, I mean, I, I, does, I don't doubt the fact that he went out there and played well against you know, against the scout team defense, or excuse me, playing well in the scout team offense. But um, forgive me for putting a lot of, or not putting a lot of stock in that because I don't. I mean, for us as fans, right? It's kind of the devil you know versus the devil you don't. And all I know is that with Justin Fuente being fully aware of the potential that this roster has, if Burmeister is the better quarterback and he didn't play solely because he wasn't eligible to play this season, Shouldn't Fuente give him at least a shot? Because you don't want to leave wins on the field by leaving the better quarterback on the bench just for the sake of continuity and keeping the guy who played well for you last year in, right? And I'm not saying that's necessarily the case. I'm just saying you have to keep an open mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, sure. I, go ahead, Rick. Well, I mean, yeah, sure, people should keep an open mind, but... Um, you know, uh, so, some people will say that well, Justin Fuente wouldn't have gone out and gotten Braxton Burmeister if he didn't really figure him to compete for the starting role at some point. But I, I think if you remember the, the timeline to when Braxton came into Virginia Tech, Justin Fuente was worried about having bodies who were capable and worthy on, of being on scholarship in that quarterback room because. At the, at the time, we weren't really sure what Ryan Willis was. Hendon Hooker was basically on his way out into the transfer portal. Quincy Patterson was a, a, a green freshman, and there was really no idea what he was going to bring to the table. And that's one of the reasons why Virginia Tech went out and got Burmeister, and one of the reasons they basically lowered their standards and decided to give Knox Kadem an offer, which is why he's on scholarship right now. So I wouldn't compare him to Knox. Yes, but I also think there's a reason why Virginia Tech went out and took a transfer quarterback who was flaming out at another Power 5 school, and it's because they wanted depth of that room. Well, right now they have the depth, so it's not like Virginia Tech is pressured to start Burmeister. He's going to come, going to have to come out and win this job, and right now he's clearly the number three in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think in order for Fuente to start Burmeister over Hendon Hooker or Quincy Patterson, he's going to have to be absolutely convinced that Burmeister is far and away the best player for Virginia Tech at the quarterback position. And I just have a hard time seeing that off the bat. Um, do I think Burmeister could win the backup job? Yeah. Do I think he'll win the starting job out of fall camp? No, I don't. Um, I think at the end of the day, Justin Fuente is taking has taken a lot of gambles, right? And number one, uh, you know, some, some that he had to, right? But um, you know, when you talk about going from Hendon Hooker to Ryan Willis, which probably saved Virginia Tech season, quite frankly, um, when you talk about 
getting rid of Charlie Wiles for better or worse, Bud Foster retiring, dumping Brian Mitchell. There were a lot of coaches that were removed from this coaching staff. And, you know, Fuente is taking a gamble. And will he continue to make gambles on the offensive side of the football and start a guy who has never played a game for Virginia Tech right off the bat next season? I would be surprised. I wouldn't be shocked. Um, but I just have a hard time envisioning Hendon Hooker just not being the starter, just given the way that he played this year. Yeah, devil you know versus devil you don't. But, like, Hendon Hooker was one of the best quarterbacks in the ACC for, like, a seven- or eight-game stretch this year. I don't think you put that guy on a bench for a kid that threw two touchdowns and six interceptions at Oregon. Like, I just don't think you do that, right? at least not right off the yeah, this is definitely a, a big conversation that we'll be able to have going forward. But I, I want to talk about tonight's basketball game because Virginia Tech comes away with the victory in the Carrier Dome on a night where they really, in, until Jalen Cohn came in in the last part of the game and shot the lights out, they couldn't hit the ocean if they were standing on the beach. I watched the game for the most part with Chris Coleman uh, from Tech Sideline, and we kept saying, like, oh my God, how how is Tech still in this game? But they win with basically suffocating defense that are late offensive push. But my question for you guys is just based on the Syracuse game, is this more of a indicator of the state of Mike Young and this program early on getting an ACC win on the road there? Or is it more of kind of an indictment of a very weak ACC basketball? Well, let's preface everything by saying Syracuse isn't really all that good. Um, they're eight and seven this year now, and they're one and three in the conference and they have a lot of depth issues. They're basically playing six or seven guys in every game now. And I I don't know if it's going to be that way all season, but it certainly looks like it thus far, but let's talk about the positives. Look, Virginia tech was down for most of this game. And, um, in the first half, they, they simply just couldn't get it done. I mean, they could not figure out the 2-3 zone. They were missing all these shots, and they flipped the switch, and that's that's a good thing. It's a good thing that they were able to win this game coming from behind um, in kind of an odd venue. I mean, we all talk about how the Carrier Dome sucks for football, but imagine playing basketball in the damn place where you've got all these football uh, seats within your view and you really don't have an idea of depth perception, but Virginia tech comes from behind in a weird place to play uh, and a weird time slot uh, in Syracuse against the funky defense. I think that's certainly a good thing. And to me, it shows more that this team's got some fight and that's good because they don't have a ton of talent. And I think that that's pretty clear. Jalen Cohn really grew up tonight. In my opinion, he was lights out in the second half. He had a period where he made those two big threes, getting fouled, um, finished with 19 points. Uh, he was he was damn impressive tonight, and they're going to need him to get better as the season goes on. But this is certainly an encouraging win, and I think it goes to show that Mike Young has definitely connected with these guys. And given his pedigree, which is a lack of you know serious uh, power five basketball pedigree, it's important that he's able to come out here and connect with these guys 
and compete toe to toe with really good coaches in the ACC like Jim Behan. Yeah, I mean Mike Young can fly out coach. Um, Virginia Tech's got talent. They're all young. Um, they're clearly inexperienced. They're clearly flawed in that they don't have a lot of size on this team. Right, the roster is is flawed. They have a lot of guys who can do the same thing. Um, everybody. Thanks, Buzz Williams. Yeah, everybody plays hard. Everybody shoots the ball. <laughs> at a relatively high clip, um, and even if they don't statistically, these are all guys who can shoot, right? Um, defensively, uh, I think they've been overall pretty good. They had a really, really rough outing in Maui against BYU, and they were coming off of that really big Michigan State win, and I think the BYU loss humbled them a little bit. Um, and, and I think Virginia Tech's defense, the way that they've played now, um, since then, since the BYU game, yeah, they've had some losses sprinkled in here and there, but I think the defense is overall starting to play a little bit better. And I think Mike Young is getting the most out of this group that he possibly can. And that's the part that's really encouraging to me, considering how young this team is and how flawed they are. Um, the fact that he's still getting a lot out of this team, that they, they now have, you know, a couple of ACC wins, they've beaten Michigan State, like, They've already done more in the first two months of the season to hang their hat on than I was even expecting heading into the year. They won their first ACC game in the opener against Clemson, uh, the season opener. Uh, they, they win this game tonight on the road at the Carrier Dome. Virginia Tech had not beaten Syracuse at the Carrier Dome in a really long time. They get that win. They beat Michigan State in, in Maui. You know, Michigan State's probably going to be a one or two seed in the tournament. So they've done a lot of really good things here early in the year, even with the losses sprinkled in. If you had told me that Tech was going to be 11-4 and four at this point in the year with two ACC wins, I, I would take that because, in, in all honesty, the roster that was coming into this season, I had no belief that this team was going to be even remotely competitive against the middle of the ACC. But calling me wrong, man, they've they've played a lot better than I thought. And Mike Young certainly looks like a damn good hire uh, from Whip Babcock. And obviously, Buzz Williams didn't leave the cupboard empty. But outside of Landers Nolly, not much elite talent remained on the roster. His his recruiting philosophy set up Mike Young for a, a not a lengthy rebuild, but a rebuild in that he's going to have to restock the front court depth here, and it's not going to be a one-season fix. It's going to be something where he's going to have to fix it over two or three recruiting classes, and that's just because Buzz Williams does not prioritize big men. He just doesn't. Well, I'll tell you one thing that really did stand out to me was just Virginia Tech's ability to D-up these guys for Syracuse, given their huge size disadvantage in that game. And it's funny, in the game where the size disadvantage probably played one of the bigger roles, it ended up being the shortest guy on the team for Virginia Tech, Jalen Cohn, who ended up the hero in the end. But I'll tell you this much, boys, a win on the road in the Carrier Dome, I don't care how bad Syracuse looks. That is a great monkey for Virginia Tech basketball to get up their back. But that's going to wrap it up here for the Hokie Hangover podcast. I am Andrew Alex for Ricky Lou and Mike McDaniel. We thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll subscribe and you know follow us on Twitter and do all the things to make the Hokie Hangover podcast a part of your podcast rotation. We will be back soon to talk more basketball and more football all-season tidbits. Until then, God bless and go Hokies. 